live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Progress take over the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the spread of digital disinformation, lies on the internet, digital disinformation, and how the spread and lies of half-truths on social media platforms, uh, in particular, have really the potential to influence our elections, to influence the way people approach our elections, and uh, fundamentally the health of our democracy. Um, and so Pew Research report, uh, Pew Research issued a report, and I don't think this will surprise most people, uh, this past October that uh, over half of adults in the United States are getting their news from social media, uh, either often or at least sometimes, which is a nearly 10% jump from the previous year. And uh, that gets troubling when you start to consider the amount of inaccurate or misleading information that is out there on every social media platform from Facebook to Twitter to uh, Instagram, you name it. Uh, although we know Facebook is often uh, one way that this gets spread, um, whether it's from organic posts from individuals, ads from campaigns, and yes, even intentional interference from foreign countries, uh, Russia, for example, uh, and the fact that this disinformation can be amplified via hyper-targeted paid advertising without much, uh, much oversight at all. And the other thing that we know about organizing is when somebody you know shares something, you are more likely to believe it to be true. And so this disinformation this can get spread and feel like there's some air of, of authenticity or accuracy to it. So to take a, a closer look at this problem and, and how we can start to solve it, we are joined in studio by two guests today. Uh, Rachel Curley, a dem democracy advocate with Public Citizens Congress Watch. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Michael Beckel, Research Director at Issue One. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of having flashbacks to 2016 for a second. And it seems like uh, this was pretty important in 2016. And yeah. continues to be today. <laughs> So, 100%. So, uh, Rachel, would you mind just sharing a little bit about the mission of Public Citizen and, and what your role as a democracy advocate entails? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. I'm super stoked to be here. Um, so, Public Citizen is a nonprofit organization. Um, we champion the public interest in the halls of power, and we do that through grassroots organizing and activating our 500,000 members and supporters across the country. We do research, we lobby on the Hill in the public interest, we sue the government when it doesn't do its job, um, and we petition. Uh, government agencies to put rules forth that protect the public. Um, my particular role as democracy advocate involves shining a light on the money that big corporations spend in our democracy. Um, due to various Supreme Court decisions, which I'm sure we could get into, they're allowed to spend money in secret to influence voters and particularly the ads they see. And so I work on combating that um, and shining light on those efforts. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Michael, could you provide some, some context on Issue 1 and, and how you came to this work? Absolutely. Uh, issue 1 is a bipartisan political reform organization. Uh, we're a relatively new player here in Washington, D.C. We're only about five or six years old, and I've been the research director there for about three years. Uh, issue 1 is uniting Democrats, Republicans, and Independents in the fight for political reform, including 
more transparency in elections. So we do a lot of studying the flow of dark money in politics. And we've also been doing a lot of tracking of the proliferation of online ads. And certainly we know that uh, paid online advertising, including paid online advertising from foreign adversaries like Russia, played a role in the last presidential election and remains a threat this election cycle. And prior to joining issue one, I worked as an investigative reporter for about 12 years following the money in politics, uh, working at OpenSecrets.org, working at the Center for Public Integrity. So following the money in politics has long been a passion of mine, and I'm very excited that I get to continue to do that at issue one. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you both. Um, and, and Michael, something that you said, we you, you talked about the bipartisan nature of, the, of your work in particular, and certainly... Um, this issue across the board is, and or should be at least, bipartisan from the from the standpoint of the integrity of our elections, the integrity of our democracy should be beyond reproach, and folks are free to choose um, how they want to vote, uh, what they value most, which elected official or candidate reflects their values, but those should be conversations that are taking place with some amount of integrity and accuracy and not with sort of the proliferation of disinformation clouding what those judgments can be. That's right. I mean, I think we've been really excited in the past several years. You know, we have a small legislative team that's going up on Capitol Hill trying to have these conversations about why these issues are important with both Democrats and Republicans in both the House and the Senate really trying to knock on a door, a lot of doors, have a lot of conversations with people. And, you know, one of the other things that makes issue one really unique is that we have a coalition of former members of Congress, former governors, former ambassadors that's uh, 200 plus strong. And so this group of 200 plus former members of Congress and former governors, we call them the Reformers Caucus. And that's about a 50-50 split between Democrats and Republicans. So a lot of them have walked this, have lived this, and can really bring a unique perspective about why it's important to, you know, have rules on the books that are being followed and make sure that Americans are deciding American elections. That's right. Americans are deciding American elections, a sort of novel concept here, um, <laughs> but but one of such importance. So, Rachel, looking, we, we've touched on this a little bit, but looking at this topic really from, from a high level, mm-hmm. why are we having this conversation? Why is it why is it um, why is the threat of digital disinformation pressing right now? What what forms is it taking? Yeah, well, so I think I want to start by just saying it is a very big topic, and I think it can seem very scary the idea that Russia directed operatives to spread misinformation online and in person. People on Facebook that seemed like Americans who said things that sounded like it belonged in the American discourse. It is a very scary idea. It seems like something straight out of a spy movie. I'm sure the movie about 2016 will be really thrilling. Um, But what I I think is important to remember is that the point of misinformation campaigns is to make people disengage. It's supposed to make people feel confused, to feel like they can't trust their friends and neighbors, they can't trust the information they're seeing from sources. Um, And so I think this conversation is so important to remind folks who are listening that now is actually not the time to disengage or tune out or just say, throw your hands up and sort of say, nothing I see is true. Um, And so at a very high level, I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's really important to combat that proliferation of misinformation by staying engaged, by finding your trusted sources, and, um, you know, having a healthy amount of skepticism when you're engaging with content online. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that I've started doing is when I see something posted that uh, seems particularly interesting or particularly surprising 
is literally just Googling to see if it's true. Totally. And oftentimes you'll get stuff that pops up from reputable sources that says, nope, that's a lie. Nope, that's being passed around on the Internet, but it's in fact not true. Yeah, I think that's such a good point that if you see, especially also if you see an organization that's promoting something and you're like, oh, that sounds legit. It's like Americans for a Better America sounds innocuous and you want to trust that to just see if they have a website. See if they have a website that seems legit. See if they have people who work there. If they have a staff list there, you can just do a little bit of digging to, you know, validate whether or not that's a real organization. For sure. So if you see an ad, for example, from Generation Progress, go ahead and Google us and see. <laughs> You'll find our smiling faces. An mm-hmm. organization does, in fact, exist. We do have staff. There is an office. But if you can't do that for an organization that's running ads, it should raise a red flag for you. Totally. Same for Public Citizen. We're very real. We yeah. exist. <laughs> I, for, for those who are listening, I am looking at Rachel. I can verify <laughs> that she is a real person. Um, Same goes for Michael. Same yeah. goes for I'm Michael. Sure. I'm also real, and you can go to issue1.org and read all about us. Uh, you know, I think it's all about thinking before you share or thinking before you retweet, you know. This this notion um, that if you see something that sounds too good to be true, in many cases it often is. And, you know, especially from my years as working as a reporter, you know, you'd hear some juicy tidbit and think, oh, my gosh, this will be the best story. And it completely falls apart when you start investigating it. So being able to run a few traps, you know, to see, you know, is this a new source that I've heard of before? Does it have a website? Is the reporter somebody that I would put faith in if there's got a byline on the article that you're storing? And, you know, click the full story before you just share the tweet, you know, right. that not just, you know, one little incendiary thing, but, you know, see what else is behind that before you share that kind of content on your social media network. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think we obviously are seeing it um, related to elections and that sort of thing, but um, where ways where we see this be, or I've seen this recently be harmful and sort of like a, a, a little bit of like a, a microcosm. Um, here's uh, in the wake of mass shootings and that sort of thing, you see people amplifying information about who the shooter is or, you know, what's happening on the ground and that sort of thing um, without doing their homework, without um, fact-checking, um, causing panic, causing rumors, mm-hmm. um, often based in um, in sort of fear-mongering, in racism. Um, so it's sort of a, it's not just something that we're seeing um, impacting our democracy, although I would say that that does have an influence on what happens <laughs> in our mm-hmm. democracy, but uh, it's just sort of um, it doesn't matter what the what the issue area is that you're looking at. Um, it could be the ma- a matter of like life and death for some folks on a pretty regular basis. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, we are so interconnected in this world right now. We are so wired. People can spend so much time and energy online, and information travels so quickly. You know, back in the day when you had disinformation efforts, uh, they still existed, but they were a lot harder uh, to reach so many people so mm-hmm. quickly and so cheaply. Right. right. So when we when we come back from this break, we're going to talk a bit more about the role that disinformation is playing on social media and what we can do to, to really combat it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the 
Mission Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, today we've got two great guests in studio. Uh, we have from Public Citizen, Rachel Curley, and we also have from Issue 1, Michael, Michael Beckel. Um, and we've been talking a little bit about misinformation um, in the digital age and how, uh, how much more ubiquitous it is and how much more sort of insidious it is. Um, mm-hmm. There's just so much more power um, that folks have over um, the public narrative, um, as in 2016, over uh, shaping the results of an election, for example. Um, so it's a really important topic to talk about as we're going here into 20, uh, into 2020. Um, so I think I want to just come back with uh, what have we learned from past elections about the spread of digital disinformation? I feel like we've learned a lot. <laughs> um, it feels like so long ago, and it's like, oh, we didn't know. know that then, and it's like, oh my gosh, how did we not know that? Right? I know. I was looking back at the such a nerd. I was looking back at the Mueller report today, as one does. Um, <laughs> the report from Special Counsel Robert Mueller. For those of you who have not read that very long report, in fairness, I haven't read the whole thing, but I was looking back at it, prepping for this show, and it's just like that came out two years ago already, and the election was four, and it just it blows my mind. Um, I think one thing to to sort of tie this issue of misinformation online and political ads into the broader conversation about democracy is just to to sort of frame this as kind of a two-pronged problem of deregulation. So in the last decade, there's been a series of Supreme Court decisions that have loosened the regulations in our campaign finance system, and they've made it easier for wealthy individuals, for foreign actors, for corporations to influence the information that voters see and to do that in secret, to sort of mask who they are, to make it hard to know where those messages are coming from. And that has been happening kind of in the campaign finance landscape. One of the tools for that are ads. And when you see an ad on TV or on you hear one on the radio, those have a significant amount of regulation around them, but there's still barriers to knowing to sort of having transparency around who's funding those ads. But then you couple that with the sort of like wild west of, the, of social media, which is largely deregulated, and you have this confluence of factors that just make it possible for these bad actors that are looking to influence your vote but not tell you who they are or what they're, um, you know, what they're all about to then spread that online really easily. Um, and so, Charlotte, I don't know if that answered your question, but I just wanted to sort of tie what we're talking about to this bigger problem of we have a lack of transparency in our democracy in general, and it's playing out on social media in like such a such an aggressive and challenging way to, to deal with. And I think to add to what Rachel said, you know, so many experts have looked at this in recent years, and, you know, one of the, you know, really big conclusions of the bipartisan congressional investigations into Russian interference, foreign interference in the 2016 election is, I think, to me, that the goal of all of the digital disinformation that we saw in 2016 was to sow division and Mm -hmm. discord in the country. You know, the election is part of it, but really the election is not the main prism to be thinking about this through, that just sowing division, sowing discord, Mm -hmm. making people lose faith in our democratic institutions uh, was a huge part of this and weakening America's power in the world. And so uh, certainly as Rachel said, you know, and, uh, you know, this is a, a one of the key findings that we published in a report last year at Issue 1, Digital Disaster, which is on our website at issue1.org. You know, between 2015 and 2017 alone, uh, it's estimated 
uh, that 11.4 million Americans saw Facebook ads that were paid for by uh, Russian government-linked entities. And that's about the equivalent of the combined number of votes that were cast in 2016 in the swing states of Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin combined. I mean, so these can be highly targeted ads, and the content uh, that you're seeing uh, could be promoting cynicism, could get you to disengage, could be outright lying about the day of the election or a position of a candidate. And really, you know, it's up to us as Americans to come together and fight back, uh, which is, you know, certainly why at issue one, one of the things that we're trying to do is get Congress to take action to make sure there are uniform rules that all the social media companies can play by. Yeah, I think one of the examples I saw, um, similar to the sowing of discord and sort of a causing division um, among the American public that I saw uh, was that there were um, paid groups, paid Russian groups uh, creating sort of like knockoff Black Lives Matter groups that were actually Mm -hmm. um, spewing like hate-filled rhetoric and like anti-white rhetoric and you know it was it was not it was not just about promoting Black Lives Matter it was to make it to sort of totally discredit that movement and make white people scared um, of, and, of the and there's movement. another great anecdote where they had these Russian backed groups on both sides getting people to show up to protest for and against and so they were really just recruiting the protest to happen on both sides and one other one other example that was recently highlighted was um, voter suppression tactics really meant to spread disinformation or highlight um, less than flattering information about Hillary Clinton and then hyper-targeting that um, to the black community or black women in particular or suburban white moms and saying, um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton believes black people are super predators. And just like with the people who are sending these ads impersonating as if they themselves are from the black community, um, and so really just spreading this disinformation and lying about the source of the information at the same time, not because they wanted to switch one's vote, because they wanted people to stay home. And so really acute impact. And it reminds me of a show, just as we wrap up here before we go to break, where we had Ted Johnson on a few a couple months back that talked about race and racism in this country as potentially being the biggest threat to our democracy. And it, the examples of social media disinformation and the role that Russia played really exploited that. So more to come about the threat of social media disinformation when we come back. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brett J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Thanks for coming back with us as we talk about the uh, age of digital disinformation um, and and the impact that it can have. We've got two guests in studio with us. We have Rachel Curley from Public Citizen, and we have Michael Becker from Issue One. And we are talking quite a bit here about the role that digital disinformation can play on social media platforms uh, and our own responsibility here to really combat it. Um, there was an article, Rachel, I know you saw this as well, uh, that was published about the rise of disinformation campaigns, uh, and specifically sort of this concept around censorship through noise. Can you share with us a little bit about what that what that is, what that means, and, and your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, so I think you're referencing an article in The Atlantic that if folks have not checked out, um, it's from this week, definitely worth checking out, um, but also maybe like taking a deep breath before you read the whole thing, because it is a sort of intense depiction of um, 
of how leaders around the world who have the goal of undermining democracies use loud disinformation to sort of drown out dissent. Um, so it's the idea that um, it doesn't really matter how pointed the you know, sort of the propaganda that you're pushing is, it's just that there's a lot of it and it really drowns out the truth and it drowns out um, facts and it makes people question what they're hearing um, and it can lead to undermining sort of journalism in general and, and trust in the press, which as folks know is a key pillar of, of a democracy um, and also just undermine folks' trust in the truth. And I think we're seeing that play out and it has real implications for... Um, as we talked about voter suppression, so whether or not people know where to go and what time to vote and what day it's on to things like sowing division amongst people and, as we were talking about earlier, sort of playing into divisions that we already have, whether that's around racism or around other lines. Um, and so it is, I think what's important to remember that it is a pointed tactic that leaders around the world use to undermine democracy. So it's not an accident that we are feeling confused and overwhelmed by the amount of misinformation. That That's such a key point, right? It's not an accident. Um, this is this is the intended consequence from a disinformation campaign. And one of the one of the things that the article speaks to is it, it predicts, which I think is a pretty scary thought here, a 2020 election uh, that is, quote unquote, shaped by coordinated bot attacks, micro-targeted fear mongering and anonymous mass texting. Michael, do you think this is an accurate characterization of the crisis that we're facing? Well, it is certainly one of the potential worst-case scenarios. I think we know right now that there are no uniform standards that each company gets to set their own rules. So Facebook can say one thing, Google says one thing, Twitter says one thing, and right now the Federal Election Commission here in Washington, D.C., has been broken and dysfunctional for years, has been unwilling to draw new bright lines in the sand for people to have to be able to come up with a coordinated uh, approach to defend uh, against uh, some of the paid online ads that you might be seeing that are digital disinformation. And Congress has been slowly wading into this issue. So if you go back, you know, four years ago, at that point in time, we know that Russians and other uh, actors were using Google, Facebook, and some of the other social media networks to share misinformation online. Some of that was paid misinformation online, and that m- reached millions of Americans. Outrage about that spurred Congress to introduce a bipartisan bill called the Honest Ads Act, which would set uniform standards for each company uh, as long as it's a major company, you know, and first and foremost, it would bring transparency and you'd be able to see what is being targeted to other Americans. So you're not just uh, flying blind in the dark, but really being able to bring more transparency to these ads to have accurate, verifiable information in a way that's easily searchable, sortable, downloadable, uh, that really relies on transparency, helping to bring accountability in this sphere. So there, I mean, so there is legislation on some of this, but the legislation hasn't been able to just keep up with like what the tools are now for people who kind of like wish ill um, on on dem- democratic systems, not just you know not just our democratic system, but democratic systems around the country, right? Like similar tools have been used um, in the Philippines um, in um, undermining democracies around the world. 
Yeah, right now we are dealing with 20th century laws trying to deal with 21st century technologies and being able to take at least a small step forward would be helpful, which is why you saw Senator Klobuchar, Senator Warner, Senator Graham come together to introduce the Honest Ads Act. And certainly in the House, uh, we've been uh, very pleased to see 18 House Republicans and 18 House Democrats come together and this Congress say, this is a good idea. We should be doing something. And of course, change is not often quick in this town. Uh, but there is, you know, at least a glimmer of hope that people on both sides of the aisle are paying attention to this issue and trying to do something about it. Yeah. yeah. And I, but while I think we're waiting for the legislation to catch up here, um, I kind of I kind of wonder if some of these platforms have um, a duty uh, to maybe, I mean, no, I don't think anybody is asking these platforms to to silence, uh, to silence voices or not allow ads. All we're doing is saying, um, can you just make sure it's it's only truthful, right? Can you make sure only facts are happening, that we're not spreading disinformation? And Mark Zuckerberg has refused to even do that, to even say, like, I, I'll, I'll be okay with uh, making sure that nobody's lying on this platform that I control and that I, you know, that I've... I just he, yeah. <laughs> he literally said um, Facebook shouldn't be responsible for arbitrating political speech. I think that's an excellent point, Charlotte. That while we're while we should be fiercely advocating for this legislation and for legislation like it that will combat misinformation online, it's important for folks, I think, to understand that while I think that the platforms have a duty to stop this kind of misinformation, and I, I think everyone here in the studio thinks that, and probably a lot of our listeners. The heads of those companies have not indicated that they take it that seriously. There's varying levels. Twitter has done a little bit more, but Facebook in particular does not seem like it's in their interest to combat this type of misinformation. Um, And while, again, I disagree with that, it's within Mark Zuckerberg's control and within the board of Facebook's control to say that or not and to, to put those policies in place. And so it is, unfortunately, at this point, incumbent on users to understand how the platform is being manipulated Mm -hmm. because as far as we can tell, the platforms are not willing to step up and solve this problem for us. And in all fairness, maybe shouldn't be the ones to solve it because they're not they're not unbiased in this situation. They are making money from ads that come through their platform. They're making money from more users. And so something like congressional oversight is really where that should live. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I just still think we're, <laughs> we're not going to have we're not going to have those laws in place before the 2020 election, and this is a choice by Mark Zuckerberg to just say, uh, "I choose I choose to step backwards. I choose to say uh, my hands are off." You know, this is not anything that's a, a necessity of the platform. It's something that they're financially capable of doing. He's just using profit over our democracy. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the you know issue that there are no uniform standards, so each company does get to dictate each rule, and some have shown, you know, more willingness to engage in certain parts of this than others. You know, if they're attacking bot networks or trying to look out for inauthentic activity on their platforms, some of that is able to be accomplished by algorithms. And, you know, you could certainly pump more money and more time and more resources into combating that kind of stuff. You know, there's a long tradition in American politics that candidates are allowed to say pretty much whatever they want in their own paid advertising. You know, if it's a radio ad, if it's a TV ad, if it's a digital ad. So candidates get to play by one set of rules, but 
outside groups, the super PACs, the dark money groups, the other PACs and actors that are taking out ads, you know, they don't necessarily have the same freedoms that candidates do when it comes to uh, the the speech uh, that, that they get to broadcast through their paid ads. So there's certainly a gap that for a long time news organizations have tried to fill and you've got TV stations selling ads and you've got newsrooms at those TV stations trying to fact check those ads. Facebook, for its part, has tried to partner with some of the news organizations to say, hey, you know, PolitiFact or hey, other independent fact checker, what can we share about these ads that are out there? But even just putting things in a simple box that says this is paid political content, making it look less like organic content, uh, there's a number of things that people are discussing that would sort of raise your alertness to it when you encounter it in the wild. Because right now, each of these platforms, you're encountering content that's just meant to be another you know cat photo that your friend is sharing and you want to take that in and really you know there's massive amounts of thought and effort behind a lot of the content that we're seeing on these platforms yeah i mean and it takes it takes all different forms right it it shows up in shareables it shows up in fake news articles which we know is a real thing Mm -hmm. uh where you will look and it looks like it's a real url it looks like it's coming from a from a real news site maybe just one you haven't heard from or, or seen before and, and we know it, it, sometimes it just isn't actual accurate information or it's heavily skewed or misleading and and it's so easy for all of us to press share or to post it on our page or to, it takes literally less than a second to make that click. And I think a lot of people do that in some cases, unfortunately, because it confirms biases that, that, that folks might hold on to um, or because it's outrageous and you wanna share it, like, oh my God, can you believe this? Um, and we have a really bad tendency of not actually reading articles, which is, Rachel, <laughs> something you raised before, but that headline looks really good. Media and, literacy is so key. You and, know. It, and it's like it's like money laundering, if we're being honest, right? Money laundering, the process of money laundering is it gets out there and it goes through so many different hands and you don't know it's dirty money by the time it's done. It's third or fourth person. Essentially what you're doing is, uh, not <coughs> essentially what's happening is the laundering of disinformation. And so it comes out from a from a disreputable source, but it's now passed through two or three people. By the time you get to the fourth or fifth user on Facebook, you have no idea where it originated from. It's coming from what appears to be a reputable reputable source to you because it's your aunt or your friend or somebody you went to high school with. They're not going to lie to me. And you don't necessarily know it originated from a Russian bot or some other entity that has nefarious sort of uh, intentions here. That's right. I do think that you know, millennials and Gen Z being sort of digital natives do have a better antenna for understanding that just just by being in the internet for so much of our lives, like have a better understanding that it is possible to edit the face of someone on a video, like a deep fake. You can make it look like, Charlotte, you've said something that you never said in your life. I think um, I'm inspired by sort of the next generation's ability to suss out what is fake and what is real online. And I think it's important that we talk to our friends and relatives who are also engaging in social media and explain like it it is very possible to be very fooled and it's not your fault but like actors like russia and even you know domestic political actors Mm -hmm. want you to be fooled and so you know just know that anything can be manipulated on the internet and i think um you know i think millennial voters and Gen Z voters are going to be really significant in the, in the next election for a lot of reasons, but this is one place where we can particularly play a role. That's right. So when we come back from this from this break, we're going to talk a bit more about what we can do and where folks can find more information on this topic. 
Leslie Marshall. Real people, real life, real talk. Back to the Generation Progress Takeover for Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And so we're talking about disinformation in the digital age. And uh, we've got in studio with us Rachel Curley from uh, Public Citizen and Michael Beckel, uh, Research Director at Issue One. Uh, and so, Michael, I want to I come right back to you here as we, as we talk a bit more. Um, have social media companies responded to this issue differently? Have some been better and some been worse? And then the second sort of all-in-one question here is, is there a role for political ads on social media platforms at all? Right. Uh, those are both great questions. We know right now that there is a patchwork of voluntary approaches that each company is taking. So Facebook sets one rule for Facebook and Instagram. Twitter sets one rule. Google sets one rule for you know its search engine and YouTube, Instagram and Pinterest and Hulu and Spotify. I mean, every <laughs> platform out there uh, gets to dictate its own rules right now. And so one of the things uh, that we're really hoping that Washington would tackle would pass legislation such as the Honest Ads Act that would set uniform rules that all companies need to play by. In the wake of all of the outrage about foreign interference and disinformation online, some of the companies have thrown their hands up in the air to say, we don't want political ads of any sort online. Some have uh, really uh, tried to take a firm stand against fact-checking anything on their website. Uh, and this has just left us in a mess. And right now, we know that Americans are living a lot of their lives online. Young people are living a lot of their lives online. So it makes sense that campaigns want to reach people where they're living. So it's clear that online spending, uh, digital ad spending, is a large part of the way that you get to communicate with voters. People, uh, especially younger people, aren't listening to the evening news or broadcast radio. And how do you reach those people? You try to target them through each of these platforms, whether that's Hulu or Spotify or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Facebook or Google ads. And right now, uh, we are simply living in a patchwork where there is a lack of transparency about who is trying to influence you. And I think that's the number one takeaway from issue one is that, you know, these ads have a place in our society, but there should be transparency about who is trying to influence you so you can actually assess the credibility of the messengers that you're seeing online. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and, and uh, y certainly young people are online and we know older older folks are getting online at a, at a growing rate as well, especially Facebook older Americans are growing at a faster rate than younger folks. And you know, Rachel, one of the things that you mentioned before was that uh, the uh, antenna that Gen Z or millennials might have seeing something, we may not have the same antenna for older Americans who are less, like didn't sort of grow up in a digital environment, but are sort of accessing this information in real time. What, what can we or what can folks do to really combat disinformation uh, that we might come across or don't even know that we're coming across? Yeah, well, I think... Again, it's important to remember a couple of things. One is that anything can be made up on the Internet. I mean, it's just the technology is there to make things seem real that are not. And as you said, I think younger generations just have that a little more ingrained in their instincts. You know, we, I grew up on 
AOL Instant Messenger being wary of like some screen name I didn't know. That was just like a thing on my radar in sixth grade. Um, but so I think for one, folks need to remember that anything can be faked. And I think secondly, that again, there is this intentional effort to confuse people. There's an intentional effort to spread misinformation. So the important thing to do is to do a little bit of your own fact checking. I know it's extra work, but I think given the crisis that we're in, it's critically important. So if you see an ad that seems incredibly inflammatory or contradict something you maybe heard elsewhere just take yourself off that platform where you saw that ad and do a little fact check google it see if the organization seems real see if there's a reputable news organization that says the same thing so i think it's important that we do our own fact check and that also that folks who are uh, more familiar with the internet talk to your friends and family explain to them that it's not again it's not your fault this is how bad actors are trying to influence you but it is unfortunately on us at this moment until we get incredibly important legislation passed to do the fact checking ourselves so what what sort of legislation um what's the name can you say the name of the bill again the legislation that people should be um asking legislators for if they're concerned about this and say first and foremost the honest ads act which exists as a bipartisan bill both in the house and the senate and um I would also say that the Honest Ads Act is rolled into a larger piece of legislation that passed the House last year called the For the People Act, or colloquially referred to here in Washington as H.R. 1, the first bill of the last Congress. Um, And that bill addresses a lot of issues in our democracy. So it addresses campaign finance reform issues. It talks about voting reform issues as well. Um, So it's a very big package that would do a lot of things, but one of them includes the entirety of the Honest Ads Act. And something else HR1 do is really um, increase with pro-voter reforms, the ability for young people to get registered and get to the polls. So just a a, a really a pro-voter, pro-democracy reform. Um, We've got just just under a minute here. Where can folks find more information about the work you all are doing in this area? Our website is issue1.org. We've got all of our reports there, and we also recently launched a podcast at swampstories.org that's bringing in bipartisan voices to talk about some of these very issues. Awesome. And Rachel? Public Citizen is online at citizen.org. You can also find us on Twitter at public underscore citizen, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram at public citizen. Fabulous. Um, Well, you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, As always, I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. And we're going to be back with you uh, next week talking about hopefully something a little bit less depressing. No. Charlotte, Charlotte, where can <laughs> folks find you on Twitter? Um, I'm at Charlotte Ann, C-H-A-R-L-A-T-A-N-N-E, but also people should follow at Gen Progress. And I am at Brent J. Cohen, B-R-E-N-T-J-C-O-H-E-N, and as Charlotte said, you should follow us at Gen Progress. Talk to you next week.